President Trump once called Congressman Elijah Cummings a terrific guy. I wonder what's changed. The lead starts right now. President Trump launching a new round of attacks on Maryland Congressman Elijah Cummings in his Baltimore district and hinting that this strategy may be part of his re-election campaign. Mice, mold, and maggots inside Baltimore-area apartments. The president's mentioned it, but did he realize many were in buildings owned by, wait for it, his son-in-law Jared Kushner's company? We talked to some of Kushner's tenants. Then, hours after this wild and tragic scene at a popular festival, new details revealed about the victims, including two small children and the killer, including possible white supremacist influences. Welcome to a special edition of The Lead. We're live outside the Fox Theater in Detroit for the CNN Democratic presidential debates. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with the politics lead and President Trump digging in on a strategy of division and exposing a common theme by once again attacking a lawmaker of color. This time he's going after Democratic Congressman Elijah Cummings and his congressional district of Baltimore. Trump launching at least 16 tweets since Saturday, calling Baltimore, quote, a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess and saying of the majority African-American district, quote, no human being would want to live there. As CNN's Abby Phillip now reports for us, the president's campaign strategy of pitting Americans against each other seems to be getting nastier with even one of his own former White House communications directors calling for more presidential self-awareness and less racism. President Trump today escalating his attacks on House Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings, saying his Baltimore district has the worst crime statistics in the nation, 25 years of all talk, no action, so tired of listening to the same old bull, and expanding his attacks to include civil rights leader and TV host Al Sharpton, who Trump claims hates whites and cops. For the second time in two weeks, Trump using language like infestation to describe the places where people of color live. And combined with his racist attack on four Democratic congresswomen of color, who he told to go back to the countries from which they came, even though they are all American, Trump is now making racial division the centerpiece of his 2020 re-election campaign. Warning Democrats that if they defend the radical left squad and King Elijah's Baltimore fail, it will be a long road to 2020. The president's aides insisting this isn't about race. No human being would want to live there. When Donald Trump attacks people... This is being perceived as racist. Do you understand why? I understand why, but that doesn't mean that it's racist. The president is pushing back against what he sees as wrong. Also underlying Trump's attacks on Cummings, his growing concern that the powerful committee chairman is using his oversight powers to investigate people close to him. It's not about not liking the president. It's about loving democracy. It's about loving our country. I'm begging the American people to pay attention to what is going on. Last week, Cummings said his committee will subpoena the text messages and emails of Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his daughter, Ivanka Trump. Trump responding on social media, accusing Cummings of trying to hurt innocent people through oversight. President Trump announced on Twitter this afternoon that he was meeting with a group that he called inner city pastors. These are a group of pastors who support him and have been to the White House before. This meeting was planned a couple of weeks ago, but those pastors, some of them came out to reporters to defend President Trump against these allegations of racism. But they did not defend the specific comments that President Trump has been making all weekend about Elijah Cummings, Al Sharpton and the city of Baltimore. Jake. 
All right, Abby Phillip, thanks so much. Uh, and, and let's reiterate that uh, the point that um, Abby made, but also uh, Bill Crystal made on Twitter, uh, Maeve, and let me start with you. Bill Crystal, the conservative writer, tweeted, what provoked Trump's attacks on Cummings? New facts about crime or poverty in Baltimore? Nope. It was a Cummings committee voted to subpoena work-related texts and emails on personal accounts by White House officials, including Ivanka and Jared. Do you agree? Is that what's behind all this? Well, clearly, uh, you know, that is what gets President Trump most upset. And, you know, but it it's a really questionable strategy in the sense that it, it brings on all the kinds of criticisms that are not helpful in terms of him appealing to the center of the country. Um, but I mean, he's, he's always going after his political enemies and whoever's been, you know, after him last as he sees it. And, and, uh, and Rick Santorum, let me ask you, uh, I mean, he does go after his political enemies, whether it's Bill de Blasio or Adam Schiff, et cetera. I about that. But, <laughs> right, right, right. As an enemy. But, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people say, look at the way he goes after people of color, uh, the way he attacks them. Go back where you came from. Uh, rat and rodent infested district. No human be- being would want to live there. Not the kind of rhetoric that I've heard you use. And you've been in this game for a long no, time. I, look, I, I, I'm not going to condone the president's rhetoric here. I, I, I know the president is upset when you go after his family. He feels like he's been unjustly assaulted uh, for, for now two plus years. And particularly his family has been put, it, put in, that, in that spotlight. The other thing, though, I do believe this president, because I've, I've talked to a lot of people around him and, and people that work with him. I do believe this president believes that he is doing more for the African-American and minority community than any other president in a long time. If you look at the economic numbers, they're strong. He feels very strongly that he has a case to make here. And so by pointing this out inarticulately, uh, he's, he's really following up on a strategy which he believes he thinks he can go into these communities and say, look, I'm, I'm the person that's delivered for this community. And you've had these people who've been there for 25 or 30 or 40 years and look at the situation and look at what I'm doing and try to draw that contrast. He hasn't drawn it very well, in my opinion. I think he gets the personal animus in the way. And uh, but I think he has a good point to make. But Mayor Gilliman, yeah. if that's what the president said, what Senator Santorum just said, I don't think there would have been the uproar that, that there's been uh, after going after the squad and about Elijah Cummings. Well, th- th- there's also uh, should be huge debate over what exactly has the president done for communities of color. Uh, he has incited uh, situations of racism where people are going into public spaces, restaurants at gas stations being told to go back to their country. They're being called the N-word. There are videos that are endlessly online uh, uh, that ba- basically trigger uh, people of color to feel very, very insecure right now in this country. That's what the president has done. This is the environment of his total and complete making. This is also not just a response to people challenging the president's children. When I ran for governor of Florida, he said that I was mayor of the most dangerous city in America, in spite of the fact that I presided over a 20-year low in our violent crime rate. Now, what the president probably didn't know is that I was the mayor of a city that was almost 70 percent white. Uh, he assumed that as a black mayor, probably I was running a city that had, you know, crime infestations all over. Well, if, if the president wants to be offended by his children, he should look first to Jared Kushner and the, the, the units that he runs in Baltimore, Maryland, that have had hundreds of violations against them we'll get to that as in the a next slumlord. Block. We'll get to that in the next block. But I think, you know, look, nobody, including and especially the mayor of Baltimore and people who live in Baltimore, would d- deny 
that Baltimore is, is a city that needs help mm-hmm. and has problems. Um, Senator, uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, Jen, let me, let me show you this tweet from President Trump. It says, crazy Bernie Sanders recently equated the city of Baltimore to a third world country. Based on that statement, I assume that Bernie must now be labeled a racist, just as a Republican would if he used that term in standard. Here is a little clip of Bernie Sanders after his uh, visit to Baltimore in 2015. Take a listen. Anyone who took the walk that we took, we took around this neighborhood would not think you're in a wealthy nation. You would think that you were in a third world country. But there is a difference. Of course. And look, I think everybody should be focused on helping people in the inner city of Baltimore get the help they need. People would like more jobs. They'd like health care. They'd like all sorts of benefits that the government could certainly support. But there is a commonality and a pattern with President Trump here. And I think that's important context. He's not attacking the Republican governors of eight of the poorest states in the country that are predominantly white. He's not attacking them. He's not attacking uh, white Republicans who oversee states in rural communities that also have high levels of poverty, like even Kentucky. higher than Kentucky, that, yeah. like Kentucky. Mitch McConnell. Uh, because they're not attacking him. Well, right. I mean, let's but, just but be honest. But that doesn't give that's you clear, permission but, to well, that, obviously. Well, that's the way the president fights back. I mean, the, the reality is, and, and contrary to what you're saying, Andrew, look, the president has done a lot. If you look at African-American poverty and, and wages and, 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 and uh, Hispanic wages and, and poverty, he, has, it, he been, has done a great he, job. He has been lifting greatly from the economy that Obama oh, uh, set up for eight what? years. That's what he's uh, How long are you going to... I mean, that, Obama blamed well, Bush forever, the truth and, and the now, truth now you're going to take okay. credit. For, I mean, it's so just, let's take a quick break. Uh, while, no, while President Trump says no human being wants to live in Baltimore, thousands of human beings call the Kushner company their landlord in the Baltimore area and they claim they lack proper plumbing and have rats in the ceiling their story next plus just a day away from the democratic debate senators kamala harris unveiling a new health care plan one that keeps private insurance we'll hear what senator bernie sanders has to think that's next stay with us our national lead now president trump's description of baltimore offended many americans but no one seriously disputes that Baltimore is a city with serious troubles. Recent statistics from the FBI show that Baltimore has the highest homicide rate in the country among big cities. And the Census Bureau shows that Baltimore's recent poverty rate is 22.1 percent, well above the national average. Those are facts that could, of course, be met with concern and empathy instead of scorn and disgust. But President Trump slammed the city of Baltimore as a rat and rodent infested mess. And perhaps forgot that it's also the place where his son-in-law, Jared Kushner's family, owns thousands of apartments. And while Kushner resigned as CEO of Kushner Companies upon joining the Trump administration, he retains financial interest in the Baltimore area properties, properties that, as CNN's Randy Kay reports for us now, have had hundreds of code violations, including for rat and rodent infestation. Maggots, mice and mold. That is what tenants in the Baltimore area say they have experienced in properties owned by Kushner Companies. As in Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law. It's particularly ironic that the president's making these comments when we know here in Baltimore County in 2017 that his son-in-law directly contributed to some of the neglect that the president purportedly is so concerned about today. In fact, back in 2017, Baltimore County found more than 200 code violations by Kushner companies at its various properties. Everything from lack of plumbing to rodent infestation. 
At this property called Essex Park, one tenant told the New York Times and ProPublica back in 2017 that her apartment was infested with mice. She said it was so bad there were mouse droppings everywhere, mice in the laundry hamper and mice in her daughter's bed. The county threatened to fine Kushner companies unless it made the necessary repairs, which Kushner companies did in all but nine properties. The place started to go down. Vanessa Johnson lived in the Cove Village apartments from 2001 until last year. You actually experienced rats. I experienced rats. The rats were in my ceilings. You could hear them walking. And so what was it like to hear rats at night? Oh, my God, it was it was crazy. I could hear them gnawing, but you can't see them, but I could hear it. Um, and, and it just made me crazy. In a statement to CNN, Kushner Company said it invests substantial amounts in the properties and is proud to own thousands of apartments in the Baltimore area, calling it a high-quality residential experience for their tenants. Meanwhile, now a class-action lawsuit is moving forward on behalf of 30,000 tenants, one tenant even claiming paying their rent in full did not prevent them from receiving illegal and predatory notices seeking payment of additional, often illegal, fees under threat of eviction. And the lawyer for the tenants describes these extra fees, Jake, as phantom fees. He says they were essentially made up by the Kushner companies and then passed on to the tenants as charges. Back to you. All right, Randy Kay, thank you so much. Uh, Kushner Companies told CNN their apartments are a, quote, high-quality residential experience, although it doesn't really sound like that. No, no. Uh, You know, you have to wonder whether... Donald Trump hasn't had some conversations with Jared over the years. I mean, this is not a new story in the sense that he's had tons, Kushner's had tons of of problems with his properties, um, this long-running lawsuit. And, you know, sometimes it's just interesting to wonder how things popped into uh, Donald Trump's head. But this is so embarrassing that his son-in-law, who is, you know, running a significant portion of the policy agenda would have uh, this kind of blight on his record. And, you know, it's it's completely counter to what Donald Trump says he's trying to do for these communities. I mean, the, the writers of this season are really getting lazy, <laughs> I think, for the fact that the president would actually talk about this. And when his own son-in-law, uh, I mean, look, this is the state of uh, urban dwelling for all over the country yeah. for low-income housing. Well, and, and not just in urban places, but there are rural places where folks are on food stamps. They're getting access to public housing. These are deplorable uh, and unlivable conditions for far too many communities. The What really troubles me about what the president is doing, um, and I need not remind him, that he's the president of all of the people of the United States of America. If, you, if those conditions existed anywhere, it's his obligation, I would think, to direct his HUD secretary toward whatever policy changes need to happen in order to fix that. But instead, he has decided to pit American against American, city against city, urban against rural, white against black and brown. And that is what I find sinister and certainly beneath the office of the presidency. And it's not difficult to find. You can find tweets from President Trump when he was a citizen criticizing President Obama for not doing more to unite and fix up Baltimore because it is a president's obligation as well. One thing that was interesting about the attacks on Elijah Cummings Uh, Earlier this year, when Congressman Mark Meadows was accused from North Carolina and a good friend of President Trump was accused of being racist, saying something racist during a hearing, Elijah Cummings came to his defense. Take a listen. You're one of my best friends. I know that shocks a lot of people. 
And, and likewise, Mr. Yeah, Chairman. Yeah, you are. And I would do, and I could see and feel your pain. And actually, just on a personal note, that was like the only nice thing I've seen in politics in the last <laughs> 10 years. Was that, 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 let's that, keep replaying. Le- yeah, legitimate expression good. of friendship. It's really nice. But uh, Congressman Meadows hasn't said anything about these attacks on Elijah Cummings, but, except he said something to yeah, you. I, I, I texted Mark before I came on because I knew you were going to talk about this, and I've been seeing the, the reports on CNN. And Mark... Uh, at told me that I could say what he typed, what he sent to me. He said that, uh, quote, no one works harder for his district than Elijah. He is a pa- he's passionate about the people he represents. And no, Elijah is not a racist. I am friends with both men, President Trump and Chairman Cummings. I know them both well, and neither is a racist. And he offered to go to, to, to Baltimore and uh, with President Trump uh, to see what they could do to, uh, uh, to remediate some of the problems that they have there. That right. sounds like a great idea. I, I have to just say, that is so deeply unsatisfying. Having... <laughs> watched Congressman Elijah Cummings give a heartfelt um, admission of friendship to someone who is an and uh, people do not like in the Democratic Party. Yeah. And he put himself out on a limb in that hearing when, when Congressman Meadows yeah. was under assault. Uh, and that's that he could have done the same thing in, it, in, well, in return it, okay. in a human well, way. You can't have heartfelt on Twitter or on a text. Well, I mean, it's, it's harder to do. I don't think it's fair to compare the he two. Did exp- okay, that's, anyway, that's, that's Mark Meadows expressing something. He did. Uh, and it's not nothing anymore. Uh, we're here in Detroit for the Democratic presidential debates. It's no coincidence the DNC wanted to hold its debate here in Michigan. Uh, we're going to talk to the governor next. Stay with us. Welcome back. We are live here in Detroit, Michigan, ahead of tomorrow night's Democratic debate right here on CNN. Major focus for the Democrats in the 2020 campaign. We'll be trying to put Michigan back in the win column, in the blue column, after Donald Trump became the first Republican presidential contender to take the state in almost 30 years. Trump won here by fewer than 11,000 votes, 0.2% of the total votes cast in the state. Joining me now is Michigan's Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. So obviously it can be done. Governor Whitmer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So my first question for you is what did you do in 2018 to win that Hillary Clinton did not do in 2016? Why were you able to win the state? Well, in 2018, I made a point of getting into all 83 counties across the state of Michigan. And this is a huge state. It took a lot of time. But I think showing up And actually listening to what people's anxieties are, to what their dreams are, keeps you tethered to the things that really matter. So I ran on fixing the damn roads. Guess what? We Mm -hmm. have an infrastructure crisis in this country. And these presidential candidates, I think, should be talking about infrastructure. I ran on cleaning up drinking water. We have got drinking water issues all across the country. And closing the skills gap through better education and skills so that people can get into good paying jobs. I never talked about what was going on in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. You go into any grocery store in this state, people are not focusing on the president's Twitter feed. They're focused on feeding their families. Well, so that's, that's an interesting point, because the Democrats nationally, Hillary Clinton in 2016, and a lot of the Democrats today, focus a lot on what they perceive to be the indecency of President Trump, the remarks he makes that by any standard are indecent, the Hollywood, Access Hollywood tape, et cetera, et cetera. We can go through, we could do six hours on that. You don't think the Democrats should focus on that? Is that what you're saying? You think Democrats coming to Michigan should talk about 
trade deals, economic anxiety, infrastructure. Is that that's what you're saying? Absolutely. At the end of the day, people are losing sleep over the fundamentals, not about what's happening in Washington, D.C. And staying focused, really building bridges, literally and figuratively, giving a vision and solutions to these issues that vex us, I think is the most powerful thing any candidate can do. So I want you to take a listen to a Michigan voter uh, that Maeve Reston, a CNN reporter who was here just a second ago, uh, talked to. Uh, his name uh, is, where is it? Grant Gaither. He was initially skeptical of President Trump, but listen to him now. Oh, it's a, it's a full screen. I'm sorry. I will take progress over a few blank words that are said here and there. The guy says stupid things, but as long as things are going good, I could give two blanks. Um, and the economy is better in Michigan than it was in 2016. Uh, wages are up. The GDP is up. What would your message be to Mr. Gaither? My message is to all Democrats who are running for president to stay focused on the fundamentals. I mean, what Mr. Gator is saying is he cares about getting things done. He cares about people who are going to solve problems and do it together. He's not paying attention to the tweet of the day. He's paying attention to what it means for his family and what it means for his bottom line. When we make sure our kids have got great schools, when we protect the Great Lakes, these are the things that Michiganders care about, and that's why I'm urging these candidates to stay focused on those fundamentals. So a lot of them are talking about fundamentals, but they're talking about proposals that some Democrats think are too far to the left. Not all, but some. Uh, Medicare for all, uh, free college tuition, college loan debt uh, forgiveness, uh, the Green New Deal, and on and on. Do you have any concerns about the direction of the Democratic Party? I think it's important for, you know, all of these candidates have positions on issues, but they got to have plans to solve problems. Talking about the Green New Deal, we have to relate it to what does it mean to the Great Lakes? What does it mean to all of these, you know, agricultural um, farms that are underwater right now? What does climate change mean to our future? To really attach the, you know, the, the, the bigger ideas of out of Washington, D.C. into the daily lives of people. That's what matters. It sounds like you're suggesting that maybe some of these ideas are a little impractical. Am I, am I reading into that too much? Well, I think in that first debate where you saw people raising their hands about private insurance, that just feeds into people's anxieties. Insurance costs too much. There are huge gaps. Um, that's what we need candidates to be focusing on, not playing into these, you know, little soundbite games, but really drilling down on how are you going to expand access for people. So uh, today, the Black Caucus of the um, Democratic legislature here came out and endorsed uh, Senator Kamala Harris. A couple days ago, the mayor of Detroit came out and endorsed uh, Vice President Joe Biden. You have not endorsed anybody. You have talked to some candidates, given them advice. And are you just telling them what you've been telling us? Absolutely. I think, you know, people are always asking, what is the what is the magic sauce in Michigan? There's nothing mystical about it. People want leaders they can look up to who can solve problems and actually deliver results for, for our people. People, improving our quality of life. I haven't endorsed yet. I may endorse before the primary. I may not. I'm going to be looking very hard at these candidates and insisting that they are going to be a great partner to me in delivering for the people of Michigan. All right. During the commercial break, you'll tell me who your favorite uh, <laughs> secretly is. Governor Whitmer, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, and congratulations sir. again on your election. You don't want to miss the reason that we're here in Detroit. Ten candidates will be on stage tomorrow for the first night of the Democratic presidential debate at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Then the other ten candidates debate Wednesday night at 8 p.m. I'm going to moderate both nights along with my colleagues, Dana Bash and Don Lemon. Two big nights only on CNN. Voters say 
It's one of the most important issues of the 2020 election, but Medicare for all is causing something of a feud among Democrats, especially right now between Senator Kamala Harris and Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator Sanders is going to respond next live here on The Lead. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead, we're just over 24 hours from tomorrow night's debate, and already battle lines are being drawn and candidates are vying to stand out with a push to release new policy, including from Senator Kamala Harris of California, who today released a new health care plan that she says is Medicare for all, but would also keep private insurance, among other differences with the Sanders Medicare for all proposal. It has a 10-year phase in instead of four years. We have Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, on the phone right now uh, to get his take on Harris's health care plan. Senator, thanks so much for calling in. You say, she says, rather, her plan addresses voter concerns about the transition process by taking 10 years instead of four. What's your response to that, sir? Well, first of all, I like uh, Kamala. Uh, she is a friend of mine, uh, but her plan is not Medicare for all. What Medicare for All understands is that health care is a human right and that the function of a sane health care system is not to make sure that insurance companies and drug companies make tens of billions of dollars in profit. The function of Medicare for All is to guarantee health care to all people as soon as possible. What we do, Jake, and people criticize me uh, for taking too long to do it, we do it over a four-year period. And that is that on the first year, we make Medicare eligibility from 65 down to 55. Then we go to 45. Then we go to 35. Then we cover everybody. What we also do, importantly, is we expand Medicare coverage for seniors to include dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses, something that does not exist now. Furthermore, what we guarantee, which is not the case in the present system, is that every American has freedom of choice with regard to the doctor or the hospital they want to go to. So, in the midst of a major health care crisis where over 80 million people have no health insurance or are underinsured today, 30,000 people mm. are dying today, half a million people a year go bankrupt because of their health, their medical bills, we think that four years is as long as it should be, not 10 years, and that's one of the reasons I disagree with uh, Senator Harris. So, she would argue that her plan addresses the concerns of Americans who are worried about banning private insurance. Uh, and, sa- and she says that what her plan does is it allows those companies, private insurance companies, to operate and compete with the public option, as it were, uh, within a much tougher system. Why is that less effective than your way? Well, the private insurance companies uh, may be greedy. They may be many things, but they're not stupid. And the function of private insurance is not, as every American who has dealt with an insurance company knows, not to provide quality care. It is to deny claims when they can. It is to make as much money as they possibly can. At the end of the day, Jake, we as a nation have got to ask ourselves a very simple question. How does it happen that we spend almost twice as much per person on health care as do the people of any other nation. And the answer is that we allow private insurance companies and drug companies to run our health care system. Under Medicare for All, we finally say that insurance companies and drug companies will not run our health care system and that we're going to run a cost-effective system by eliminating 
the incredible profiteering that we're seeing from the insurance companies and the drug companies, the exorbitant salaries, for example. You're in Detroit. I'm in Detroit right now. The guy who's head of Blue Cross Blue Shield here in Michigan makes $19 million a year in compensation, and he is not one of the highest-paid people. You got the guy who was head of Aetna making a $500 million bonus for putting together a merger between Aetna uh, and CVS. $500 million of health care dollars goes into the pocket of one person. That is what the health insurance industry is about. And the mm-hmm. reason we spend so much more than any other country is that those countries have understood that, and we have got to move in that direction. Senator Bernie Sanders, thanks so much for calling in. We appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you on the debate stage tomorrow night. Thank you, Jake. Uh, let's talk about this. Jen, your reaction to Senator Sanders' comments on Harris's health care plan. Well, first of all, uh, Senator Sanders is the only purist on Medicare for All. And there has been this perception that all the Democrats running for president are all for Medicare for All. That's not true. It's changed as time has gone on. And I, as I've watched, I think they've all looked for escape hatches so that they are not running on Medicare for All in the general election. That's exactly what Kamala Harris did. She positioned herself in between Senator Sanders and Senator Biden, essentially. And what she's trying to address here are the two criticisms, as you touched on in, in the questions you asked him, which is the having to give up private insurance and, rate and taxes going up on the middle class. Now, ultimately, when it comes down to a general election, if she's the nominee, if someone else is the nominee, They'll all come together, and I think the proposal will not be Medicare for all. It will be uh, some version of Medicare for X or Medicare for America, where you are expanding access, you're making it less expensive, you're building on Obamacare. Mm. That's where most of the Democrats are. It was interesting that he said, she's my friend, and he didn't go after her. Um, I think that uh, is an indication of perhaps what his strategy may be. Uh, But if you're him, even with Elizabeth Warren, he is much more of a purist on this issue. He's not co-sponsoring other bills. Well, and it's it's not just, I mean, she has struggled so much with this issue, uh, it, even in that first town hall uh, that you did with her this year. And she really needed to come out with a much clearer position of where she stands. Obviously, there's still criticisms about whether or not her version of it w- would work. Um, but at the same time, it's just just fascinating to me, like how huge the disconnect is between the Democrats, particularly Sanders, and where moderate and independent voters are on this. I mean, I just, just being out in the swing states, talking to these people, they don't want people to touch their health care. And, you know, many of them here in Michigan have worked very hard to get those benefits. A lot of the union members. A lot of the union members. What what do you think? I mean, I simply say, to break it down to kitchen table issues, people want to be able to ensure that they don't go bankrupt if they happen to get sick. Uh, I respect both Senator Sanders as well as Senator Harris, and I think they are after a similar objective, which is to decrease the costs, expand access, and to give some people some predictability around the kind of security they can have with their health care. Now, there are a lot of ways to slice this thing, and I think that's what the debate will be about as you all get into the nuance of this. Um, I don't think that there is one single way to address uh, this issue, uh, and I'm, um, I'm looking forward to seeing how vigorously each of them defend their platforms tomorrow. And, go ahead, Senator. Quickly, the, uh, Senator Harris's proposal is nothing but a delayed Medicare for all. Let's just be honest. At the end of the game, private health care is eliminated. You will lose your private health insurance. 180 million people who are in private health care right now will no longer be able to have it. She says we'll keep insurance companies around to do what Medicare Advantage does, but it's a Medicare program or a Medicaid program. It is it is Medicare for all, and it is no, no substantively different. So I disagree with you, Jen. I think the Democratic Party is moving, uh, whether it's in four years or ten years, they're moving toward government-run health care and socialized medicine. I mean, you listen to Bernie Sanders. I mean, he spoke like a true socialist there. I mean, 
mean, you know, the private sector is evil. All they want money. And the only people that can do things is the government. The only people that can be fair is the government. That's, if that's their message, good luck with it. But I think the difference is also clear. The Republicans are running to take health care away from no, people. Democrats Trump are running to expand to, access to, to health care. To help Obamacare okay. than anybody. Terror as people scramble for safety as a gunman opens fire at a popular food festival. Now police are looking into a possible connection to white supremacy. Stay with us. In our national lead today, horrific acts of gun violence erupted this weekend in Philadelphia and Brooklyn, but the worst carnage was at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in Northern California, where a shooter killed three innocent people and wounded 12 before police shot and killed him, the youngest victim, just six years old. And as CNN's Sarah Seidner now reports for us, the shooter's social media posts are giving police a dark look into a possible motive. After all this chaos and panic at the Gilroy Garlic Festival, today, a search for answers. Police now identifying the gunman as 19-year-old Santino William Legan, saying he was armed with an AK-47-style assault rifle purchased legally in Nevada three weeks ago. And despite the fact that they were outgunned with their handguns against a rifle, uh, those three officers were able to fatally wound that suspect. Police now trying to figure out why. Our preeminent and principal concern at this point is motivation, ideological leanings. Was he affiliated with anyone or any group? An Instagram account created four days ago under the suspect's name with two images posted shortly before the shooting. One is a photo taken from the Garlic Festival. The other, posted an hour later, is a photo of Smokey Bear warning of high fire danger. The caption recommends reading a white supremacist book. Police say Legan entered the festival by cutting through a fence around the property, avoiding security. I seen him shooting at everyone. It looked like he just wanted to shoot at everyone. He didn't have no direct target. They're still investigating witness reports of a second suspect, but believe Legan was the only shooter. You could hear bullets, and uh, the bullets were hitting the ground. You could see them go up, and that's why I called out. It's a real gun. We also now know that two of the three people killed were children. A 13-year-old girl and a six-year-old boy named Stephen Romero. I couldn't believe what was happening. They told me he was in critical condition, that they were working on him. And then five minutes later, they told me that he was dead. Police say they engaged the shooter within one minute of the shooting. But by then, he had already killed three people and he had wounded 12 others. Jake? Sarah Seidner, thank you so much. Back to our 2020 lead. It is one of the most important issues on the campaign trail, the climate crisis, as part of our coverage of policy issues before tomorrow night's debate. CNN's climate change correspondent, Bill Weir, is taking a look at how presidential hopefuls plan on fighting the impending threat. Every leading Democrat for president agrees. It's a simple question. What is the biggest threat? to what is, Who is the geopolitical threat to the United States? To save life as we know it. Senator Warner. Yeah, Senator Booker. Nuclear proliferation and climate change. America must join her allies to fight World War C. Well, first of all, I don't even call it climate change. It's a climate crisis. All of them say the U.S. should rejoin the Paris Accords. But few have detailed exactly how they would stop humanity from cooking itself on fossil fuel. Less than half the field has put out a comprehensive climate plan, and most of those are thin. But the first came from Beto O'Rourke. 
we are announcing the most ambitious climate plan in the history of the United States. To run against Ted Cruz for Senate last year, he took individual donations from oil and gas executives. But he swore off their money this time and now vows to spend $5 trillion to get America off of oil and gas. He favors outlawing carbon pollution by 2050, while others like Kristen Gillibrand prefer a carbon tax. She'd have polluters pay a stiff $52 for each ton burned and would use the money on a national energy transition. We want to use innovation, entrepreneurialism, and new technologies for wind, solar, geothermal, hydropower, biofuels. But Pete Buttigieg and John Delaney would pass carbon tax money directly to you. The greatest challenges we face in the future will be over technology, intellectual property, clean energy, a warming planet. Joe Biden caught grief from climate hawks for floating a middle ground approach. And while his $1.7 trillion plan is vague, he has Obama's green legacy to run on. Elizabeth Warren is in for $2 trillion and wants to start the fight by forcing corporations to report exactly how much damage they are doing to the planet and then use that data to keep lobbyists and lawmakers honest. It's 25 years of corruption in Washington that we're paying for now. Cory Booker is a rare fan of nuclear energy and, like fellow Senator Kamala Harris, often emphasizes environmental justice for poor communities already being hit the hardest. But the most detailed plan by far comes from Jay Inslee. Other candidates might put it on their to-do list. That just does not cut it. The Washington governor would spend $9 trillion, create a GI bill for displaced miners and frackers, and force every new car to be 100% zero emission by 2030. To him, everything on the president's desk, from the economy to health to national defense, is a climate issue. We can't, you know, tell China to solve the problem if we refuse to. We need to inspire them to act in the rest of the world and not give them an excuse for inaction. Bernie Sanders has yet to release a detailed climate plan, surprising given his decades-old passion for the topic. He is a leading proponent of the Green New Deal, also a plan big on ambition, short on specifics. Green New Deal! Green New Deal! But the young activists behind this call to arms are short on patience. The Sunrise Movement wants America off oil and gas 15 years faster than Beto, Inslee, and the rest. For this generation, it's great that the grown-ups on this stage are finally talking about their planet. But if the threat is as bad as they say, the ideas and urgency are just too little too late. Bill Weir, CNN New York. And our thanks to Bill Weir for that report. Republican leaders are not exactly celebrating President Trump's pick to lead the intelligence community. That story next. Stay with us.